Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Critics podcast. I'm Steve Norman, joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. Matt Lamborn. Hello. And Carol Petz. Hello. As this podcast has four people on it for quite possibly the first time ever. Owen will probably tell me I'm wrong. Well, there was all the ones that you, me, Jerry, and James did. There we go. I think, I think, <laughs> a year's worth of podcasts where there were four of us. I've, I've, I've written Jerry out of our history. Just like just like something that I'm trying to remember where somebody was written out. Just like Happy Days where the older brother got written out after the first series and never mentioned again. That's, that's what's happened. Jerry's history with us has been completely erased. So are we to assume you're going to go back and edit all of the old podcasts, just cut out all of the bits where Jerry's in it, or we say Jerry? No. Ask him. That, no. Sounds, that sounds like work. <laughs> we'll just pretend you've done it, it's fine. I'll just edit this bit out. <laughs> no, you won't. No, well, nothing gets edited in this podcast, and we're lucky that the bits in between us talking gets cut out. Yeah. Yes, James, James is still on his absence. Um... And he'll be back someone else. Anyway, we're going to start off with the quiz where Owen is winning 2-1 still after nobody got the answer last week because either Matt tested us too hard or me and Owen are too stupid. I have it on good authority that a number of people guessed it quite early on. So I'm not going to say anything about <laughs> you guys, but uh, yeah, we could do with it being a little easier this week. So Tom Cruise or the Brad Pitt would be quite nice. So in a bit. Oh, uh, hang on a second, guys. Uh, <laughs> talk among yourselves. <laughs> in a bid to make it easier, we've taken Quizmaster duties away from Matt, given them to Carol. So Carol, if you would like to begin. Well, I don't know whether. Well, I'll give it a go. I'm not sure whether it's going to work that way. Um, all right. So the first one we have uh, is the 1982 version of Annie. Yes, there is one. I didn't know there was more that than gin- one version of Annie. That Ginger Girl. That Ginger Girl, yeah, the Ginger Girl film. No, that's, that's the best for the answer. No. Oh, no, no, no. I don't think that counts. And, and, uh, <laughs> what was it, 80 or 82? 82. Someone like Steve Martin? No, it's not Steve no. Martin. 
Anyone? No, I'm not going to get. I'll go on. Uh, okay. Uh, next one is Legend. Oh, is it Tom Cruise? No, it's not Tom Cruise. <laughs> that would be a uh, weird coincidence. I just kind of clicked on Legend and picked someone else. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, I think I might know who it is then. You'll probably yeah. get it from the next one, to be honest, because yeah. the next one is actually quite obvious too. Okay. Uh, anyone from Legend? Anyone to guess it from Legend? No. I think I've got a couple no. of ideas, but yeah. I don't think I'm allowed to say them no, it's, it's between me and Owen. I'll keep my mouth shut. It's, it's confusing enough with two people. I don't think it needs uh, the first two involved. Um, all right, so the next one is who? Well, I was going to guess Tim Curry. <gasps> Why don't you? Is it Tim Curry? It is Tim Curry. Yes, okay. Well thank you, thank you. A lot I quicker than last week. Legend. I can't, I can't remember him before his legend. He's the devil, isn't he? Yeah, he plays the big red devil guy. Oh, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I'm glad to rewatch it. Yeah, uh, well, well done, yeah. Owen. And hey, you give him a win. A definite win. Yeah, and, uh, yeah I've got... No, you, no, you definitely have to watch Francis Ha, Steve. That is still my pick. You've right. still got to watch Francis Ha on Netflix UK. I will have watched that probably by next week, yes. <laughs> I can't make Possibly. any promises. <laughs> Right, quiz over and on to the news. Some sad news from the world of film after has announced last week that Bob Hoskins uh, passed away at the age of 71. Uh, he starred in The Long Good Friday, Mona Lisa, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Hook and many others. Yeah, I think most people my age probably, to be honest, remember him from Who Framed Roger Rabbit much more. Uh, I know I did. I that was one of the two VHSs that I had that weren't recorded off the TV. They were actual proper VHSs <laughs> that we'd bought. It was uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, for the record. Um, and I think I, I started to wear it out because I watched it so many times. Um, obviously, when I was a kid, it was just it was fantastic. It, it, it's just such an inventive film. And actually, I watched it um, over the weekend in memoriam. Um, and it, and it still holds up. It's just so funny. It's like a kid. It's like a noir for kids, basically. It's fantastic. But um, when I was about 20 years old, I think, my dad is a, is a big fan of gangster films. And he showed me Mona Lisa um, and Long Good Friday. And I was just absolutely blown away. Because up until then, I'd only known him as, as Eddie Valiant and Smee from Hook. Mm. And the idea that, that he was this good an actor just absolutely blew me away. And then, obviously... Um, in his later life he did uh, things like Last Orders which is also a really good film um, and I think he's going to be really missed and he's part of this ever decreasing circle of uh, someone mentioned in The Guardian this week I think of working class actors there just you know, don't seem to be that many coming through at the moment um, and it definitely felt like he was like a proper uh, working class actor you know there was no airs mm. and graces around him the story of how he became an actor was was pretty entertaining, a pretty good story. That he was just waiting for a friend who was having an audition and got yeah. told that he was auditioning <laughs> for something himself, and his friend ended up being his understudy. Yeah, can you imagine that happening now? Though you, you just can't imagine it. Um, so you know, it's, it's it's pretty sad that it's kind of going that way. But um, yeah, he'll be tremendously missed. I'm just happy when he um, said he was retiring. I think it was 2012. He um, revealed he had. 
Parkinson's and he's able to retire and, and the outpouring of kind of tributes then was really nice and because you don't normally get those those sorts of things until after you've gone and I like to think it was really nice that he knew that people felt that way about him you know, all, at that point in his life. All the people speaking about him after his death have, have been immensely positive you know a lot stronger than just kind of oh, you're a really nice guy, sad loss. Everyone has got one, a really positive thing to say and, and some kind of positive anecdote about him as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you can imagine him being that sort of person as well, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's amazing the, the breadth of um, adoration for him that, that's, that's been revealed this week as well. You know, people from America seem to love him a lot more, weirdly, a lot more than a lot of Brits seem to. Um He's got a massive following out there, which I find really surprising. Because, like you said, he's you know he's this working class actor, and uh, I, I was listening to um, local radio near me. I get it for the traffic updates, and I also quite love the partridgeisms that come out of the uh, local radio presenters. But they were, even they were talking about him, and the guy on there was saying, you know, oh, he remembers when he used to live around the corner from Bob Hoskins, and you just see him walking about the street, even though he was in these multi-million dollar films over in America, and it was just amazing. He just didn't really take to that lifestyle at all, and he just stayed very grounded throughout his career, which I think is also one of those things you probably don't really see of it, uh, um, too much in in modern actors either. You know, people who just still hang around the places where they grew up because that's where they like to live. They don't try and live up to this expectation of being, you know, big Hollywood stars, and yet still pulling really great performances. Yeah, definitely. It'll be it'll be much missed. Yeah, it was a massive part of uh, my childhood, sort of growing up. He featured in three very prominent movies uh, during my infancy. Uh, we've already touched on Roger Rabbit, which is an absolutely outstanding film and, and will hold up for as long as any other animated film is likely to. Um, Hook is is absolutely magical. You're not about to talk about Mario Brothers, are you, Well, I was just going to say, (laughs) it's important, even if it it wasn't very good, because it sort of finished off a very uh, powerful sort of reign of the early 90s, where he featured in some absolutely huge movies in America with uh, Hulk, Mermaids, and and Mario Brothers, and although that wasn't very good, um, it, it could have been brilliant, and... It was interesting casting, to say the least, but at least you can you can honestly say, hand on heart, that Bob Hoskins' performance in it is a highlight of an otherwise quite poor movie. So, yeah, very sad about the news myself there. And uh, funnily enough, actually, when I when it uh, the afternoon it came out that he'd uh, passed away, I think he passed away the day before it was announced. Um, I went home and opened up my um, BFI guide uh, for June, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit is being shown on the first of June. Um, with a Q&A, so it's going to be kind of, I'm, I'm actually going to, I got my tickets today, um, so it's going to be kind of a bittersweet thing, I think, it was obviously arranged before before he passed away, um, but it's going to be a, going to be quite an experience, I think. Yeah, there'll probably be a, a, there'll probably be, a, you know, a bit of a, a strange atmosphere there, considering what, you know, what's happened. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's I think it's mainly for the kids, though, to be honest. Although, to be honest, when I was watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit last week, I was sitting there thinking, I don't know how this ever got a PG. <laughs> it's, it's, got it's, some dark it's got some very dark undertones to it, with the, the dip 
Yeah. On the attempted murder of cartoon. Basically, just executing a, a cartoon shoe in, in this kind of vat of liquid. It's horrible. Yeah. And, of course, the, the sexuality in the movie as well. I mean, yeah. Jessica Rabbit is a sort of pin-up for, for animated female characters now, uh, which has stuck over the course of, of 20 or so years. But, uh, yeah. But it's a very different rating system back then to what it is today. Yeah, I think so. That, that steamroller bit at the end haunted oh. my dreams for years. I, I, was, I, was, I love that fight scene. That must be like one of the best animated fight scenes of all time. When he came back, I couldn't I couldn't watch it because of the eyes. Uh, things with, And even now, things with strange eyes freak me out. Uh, I could never put it together that it was actually Doc Brown as well. Yeah. I was so young when I, when I killed your brother. Yeah. <laughs> Horrible. I was like, Doc Brown, how could you? <laughs> uh, anyway, yes. Yeah, so that is the uh, sad news about the passing away of uh, Bob Hoskins, and we'll leave part one there and be back after a break with what we've been watching. So, time for what we've been watching now, uh, where we take a look back at the films we've seen over the last seven days or so that aren't necessarily new releases. I haven't been able to see anything, so you won't have to listen to me very much in this bit, but we'll start off with Owen. Okay, yep, quite a contrast then to last week's podcast, where I reviewed the Saw franchise. Uh, This week I'm going to talk a little bit about a film called Gertrude. Um, it's a Danish film from 1964, and it's probably most well-known for having the unfortunate title of being the legendary and extremely well-regarded director Carl Theodore Dreyer's last movie before he pegged it. Um, I'm sure um, a lot of people listening already know who he is, um, or if not, then have at least heard of him. But for the benefit of those that don't know who Carl Theodore Dreyer is, uh, I'll give a bit of background first, very brief. Uh, overview before I talk about um, the film. He's a Danish director, probably most famous for his final five movies that he made over um, the course of four decades, spanning from the 1920s through to the mid-60s. Um, I was surprised to learn that his penultimate movie, which is called Audet, but I don't know how you pronounce it, Audet, Audet, something like that, uh, also known as The Word, was the only financially successful movie he ever made. Um you know, which is surprising given his lasting legacy on film. But he's also made, he's also famous for things like the 1932 film Vampire, um, for Day of Wrath as well, which apparently offended the Nazis who were occupying parts of Scandinavia at the time enormously as it compared them to uh, witch hunters in the 17th century, uh, which is quite a brave thing to do at the time. And of course, his most famous film uh, and one of my personal favourite films of all time, although it is the only Carl Theodore Dreyer film I've seen other than Gertrude. That's his 1928 silent movie, The Passion of Joan of Arc, which I've talked about on the podcast before. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, despite being a much-loved director, all of his movies, particularly those that I've just mentioned, uh, come with a reputation of having an immensely slow pace, to the point that they're sometimes written off as quite tedious. Uh, Whilst I can kind of understand how... Films like The Passion of Joan of Arc might have that kind of rec- reputation amongst people. Uh, I just absolutely disagree, as it's such an incredibly complex movie. Um, for something with no spoken dialogue in it, and set mainly in one tidy little blank, virtually empty courtroom, it is a stunning piece of filmmaking. And quite rightly, it is regarded as one of the most important films ever made, and kind of cements his reputation as one of the most important filmmakers ever. Um, as 
per its position in the Sighting Stone top ten. Although, Steve, I don't think we uh, treat that list as gospel, do we? Sighting Stone top ten. I don't think no. it should be. No, <laughs> quite rightly. But, um, yeah, so anyway, my expectations were pretty high for Gertrude. Um, however, uh, unfortunately, I would describe Gertrude as tedious. Um, it's essentially the story of a woman called Gertrude, obviously, who is a former politician's wife, and it's, she describes her relationships with some men over a period of time. And it's based on a play, which is blatantly obvious from the way it's made, as it's more of a quiet and personal story um, than any kind of like sweeping epic. Um, I don't really have any qualms with how the film looked or how it was made. It was shot in a way that you, as a viewer, were never far from Gertrude. She was practically in the centre of every single frame, which was quite clever, I guess, as it made you her audience rather than um, whoever she was actually addressing in the film itself. Uh, add to that one of the other things the film is quite well known for, such as its very, very long single takes, uh, sometimes going up to ten minutes at a time. Um, so it's patently impressive, if somewhat exhausting film to watch. Um, it's just mostly everything else that I saw, uh, with regards to the script and so on, that just rubbed me up the wrong way. The impression I got was that it's like how a sixth form poet who's never actually talked to a member of the opposite sex before, imagines these sophisticated adult relationships to be like. Um, particularly with regards to the dialogue, which was just a series of terrible monologues about love that the, the melodramatic acting just did not complement. Um, so when characters are not talking, they're pretty much stood solidly in a pose, ready to swoosh into their next overly dramatic, oh, woe is me, stance before the next cringe-inducing lines kind of spurted from their mouths. A bit um, like showgirls, then. A bit, a bit like <laughs> showgirls, yeah. Um, or, I guess, um, it, it was just so dull and lifeless. You know, every line was devoid of any uh, real emotion, rather than this fantastical, philosophical notion of what love between two people really means. Um it was hard to just give a shit about anything Gertrude did or any of her problems, um, or even kind of t trying to stay focused on whatever bollocks she was babbling on about during some of the longer scenes, without kind of screwing my face up or rolling my eyes or laying out a big sigh or checking and rechecking the runtime. Yeah, so, I mean, as you can tell, I was a bit disappointed with Gertrude. Um, I don't mind slow-burning human interest dramas. You know, I watched um, a Japanese film the day before, watching Gertrude, which was called uh, Lake Chrysanthemums. And that's a really famous film as well. And that was a lot more interesting. But Gertrude, yeah, I don't know. It's, I don't know, it's made me a little less optimistic about watching Dreyer's other movies as well, though, which I didn't want to happen. But I can feel it's definitely had that effect. I mean, I've got Day of Wrath next on my list. Um, but I just feel a, bit, a little less enthusiastic about it now. Um, although maybe, you know, that might be a good thing, maybe kind of lowering, lowering my expectations and not anticipating another passion of Joan of Arc will kind of count in its favour, but um, we'll see. But yeah, yeah. as for Gertrude, though, yeah, it's a bit of a shame, didn't really get on with it, but um, never mind. Might be one of those films, you know, when you see it again in a few years' time, you find a new appreciation for it. Um, but yeah, right now, I just found it so, so boring. It was, yeah, really boring. That was my lasting impression. I'm surprised you didn't make me watch that then for winning the quiz. <laughs> if I could have found it online, Steve, if only I could have found it online. 
Okay, and um, Carol, what did you see this week? Uh, not a lot, thanks to Virgin Media, with my awful broadband not working. Uh, I had to rely on physical media last week. This is why I keep DVDs, because I have Virgin Media as a broadband provider. But anyway, when it came back, uh, I watched, yesterday I watched a documentary called The Queen of Versailles. Um, I don't know whether anyone has seen this documentary. It's um, part of the Storyville strand, which I think... Uh, Blackfish was also under, so I, I know it's been broadcast on BBC. Um, it starts off like, I, I don't watch things on TLC channel, uh, but it starts off how I would imagine things like that, that are shown on there do start um, with this kind of mega rich family. The, the whole idea is that it's called the Queen of Versailles. Versailles is a house that's being built. It's a 90,000 foot square house. Um, in Florida. It's being built by a couple. Um, the husband has made his an absolute fortune out of timeshares. He's just opened up a place in, in Vegas. He's opened up PH West Cape Tower there. They've got, I don't know, 25 um, venues around the world. And he, he's made loads and loads of money. So they're building this house. And the documentary maker's asking why they're building this house. And he says, because I can. This place is ridiculous. It's like $100 million. It's got like 30 bathrooms, I think they said. Um, so that's what it starts off as. It's, it starts off as them following the construction of this kind of dream house. Um, but halfway through the documentary, and I'd like to think this wasn't, kind of, no one saw this coming. Um, it, it starts off in about 2008, I think. And halfway through the credit crunch hits and without going into a load of boring detail this kind of really messes up their whole business because their whole business is, is built basically on subprime mortgages um because no one ever puts the whole money for a timeshare down they kind of basically mortgage it back to them so the whole company just kind of goes belly up they're having to lay off thousands of people um they're all taking pay cuts and the construction of this house stops and all the while you're sitting there thinking I shouldn't really feel sorry for these people. They are billionaires. <laughs> but I actually really feel sorry. Without wanting to give away a lot of what happens, you kind of it, it kind of wrong foots you from the start about, um, especially the wife, because you kind of think that, um, I think her name was Jackie, um, you kind of think that she's kind of this trophy wife at first. And then as it goes on, you hear more and more of her story and how she's basically come from nothing and, and she went on to be, she got an IT degree and, and went on to become uh, Miss America, uh, went through her first marriage and this is her second marriage. And it just achieves basically the near impossible in making you feel really compassionate for these multi-millionaires about this house. The house kind of takes a, a back a backseat, to be honest, towards the end of the film because they're more um, fighting to to save their business, really. And obviously there are a lot of other people who this is affecting. When it starts off, uh, David Siegel, the, the guy who owns the business, says that everyone who he knows uh, is better for having known him. And then by the end, he's having to lay off thousands of employees and you kind of think, well, I'm not sure about that anymore. But um, it, it's just, it's a really strange film. It, it's really good. Um, in the, it, le it does let you draw your own conclusions and it does make you feel ultimately quite sorry for these people who have made money out of timeshares. No one likes timeshares. But you still you still kind of feel bad for them, you know? So it's it's definitely worth a watch. Uh, I think it's only about an hour and a half long. Um, and it's it's definitely worth a watch if you like good documentaries, and I do. 
Okay. You must have been on the Storyville season before Blackfish then. Because I think I started watching them from Blackfish, which was one of the it, last it's ones. Been on, it's been on Netflix. I've seen it on Netflix. Oh, is it? So it, it's been around for a while. Yeah, I think it, it was actually made in 2012, I think. Um, because I actually went onto Wikipedia afterwards to see, what, I'm not going to give it away, but to see what happened to the house and the business afterwards. Because I remember thinking it was actually quite long ago in relation to what was going on in the film but yeah it's, it's definitely it's recommended if you like that kind of storyville type documentary okay and matt can you round off what we've been watching for us then yeah sure over the weekend i managed to get hold of the home release on blu-ray for american hustle um, so i'll just skim over it very quickly because i know it's been covered in depth on the podcast before so it's a story of a uh, Christian Bale and Amy Adams, who are a couple, get together and they are professional con artists and they get entrapped by FBI agent Bradley Cooper into um, helping him ensnare politicians into uh, corruption to try and uh, propel his career artificially, if you like. Um, It's a great crime caper, very clever plot. All the cast have exceptional chemistry together. Uh, It's very sexy. It's very cool got a great uh, score to it so if you didn't get a chance to see it on its initial release at the cinema i highly recommend checking it out it was i think released on the first of january this year so that would technically put it in my top five movies of this year so far and i think it will be hard to sort of jolt it out of that position so gets the big thumbs up for me check it out if you can was did was it callum who told everyone not to buy it Yes, it was, and, and Callum, Callum is wrong. <laughs> He's wrong. Callum is very, wrong. very wrong. Yeah. It's a good film. I liked American Hustle, but the critics, like, in general, I know that's a very sweeping statement, in general, didn't seem to be that impressed with it, and I, I think part of that must have stemmed from the fact it was up for so many awards. I, I wasn't that impressed with it, and I think probably a lot of it had to do with the reception it had, and, and it was up for so many awards before. I like the parts. I like David O. Russell films. I really do. I like Three Kings. Um, I like I Heart Huckabees, all, all that kind of stuff. And I like the actors in it. It just didn't really... It felt like... Um, it felt like the Argo of that year, whereas mm. it was the one that everyone minded the least. <laughs> you know, I can't really That's think a of a better way. Yeah, I can't really think of a better way to put it. Um, it. It was, it was fine, but it wasn't. I didn't, I didn't think it was kind of worth that much attention. To yeah, I, mean, that, I, I thought it was good or very good. I didn't think it was great. Yeah, and yeah, I didn't hate it by any means. There's only like a couple. I think the problem I had with American Hustle was that I liked it and I enjoyed watching it, but there are only a couple of moments in it that were really, really good. Like Robert De Niro's bit in it, I thought was really good. I really yeah, liked that. That, that was very tense. So that was it was. Around, yeah, that was good. And you know, there were other little scenes here and there which were which were quite good, but there was only a couple that I thought like that De Niro scene, which were really good and made it stand out a bit. But I mean, generally, I thought it was quite good. I quite liked it. I would watch it again quite happily. Yeah, maybe it's dependent on on your particular sense of humour because I was giggling throughout the whole mm. thing. Maybe that says something about me. I don't know, <laughs> but, it, but it but it definitely works for me on 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 many levels. And you know, the the sort of quirkiness of Jennifer Lawrence's idiotic character in it, and the little cameo by Louis C.K. I just, I just really enjoyed all of it. It's just a good fun movie. Nothing too complex. It's a great date movie. You know, it's a good one to to go see with your other half and whatnot. So. Uh, yeah, it's all good from my point of view. I can appreciate that it might not be for everybody, but it's certainly enjoyable for me. 
that's all for what we've been watching then. And up next, we'll have our reviews of new releases, Pompeii and Bad Neighbours. So time to review some new releases now. Uh, first up is Pompeii. Here's a clip. Tonight I saw the man who killed my whole family. Perhaps the gods spared me for a reason. The Romans took my family from me 20 years ago. At night I try and remember their faces, but I cannot. But I know one day the gods will bring me to them again. My name is Milo. Articus. That was then a clip of Pompeii, or Pompeii 3D as it seems to be publicised as, seen by Owen, um, who will review it in full. We did think about doing a spoiler alert for this, didn't we, Owen? But then we decided that everyone should know that a volcano goes off probably. Oh, prob- Steve, you ruined it! Probably, yeah. probably at some point during the film, towards the end. Yes, there yeah. is a volcano that explodes and throws dust and clays and stuff. I'll come on to that. Everybody uh, who did Cambridge Latin course at school is like, oh, I knew that. Or just has any general knowledge at all, really. <laughs> yeah. Unless they're one of those guys who thought it was just pomp too. Yeah. <laughs> I was just about to make that joke. I, is, I have went so many people up with it. So many people seem to be so easy to wind up by calling it Pop 2. I just love it. Anyway, yeah, so... I might, I might I, have to see it if it was Pop 2. If it was Pop 2. Yeah, they, if they do a sequel, I can't see how they would do a sequel. But if they do a sequel, it should definitely... Oh, actually, The Trip, the episode of The Trip, is anyone watching that? Yes, uh, I saw it this morning, yes. Yeah, <laughs> small man in a box. Just do a whole film. Oh, just do box. that. Just do that for a whole 90 minutes. Oh, that would be brilliant. <laughs> but anyway, yes, Pompeii. Um... Stars Kit Harrison, uh, also known as the bastard Jon Snow from Game of Thrones, as a slave cum gladiator uh, known simply as the Celt, who is biding his time before he can get revenge on the Romans that slaughtered his entire valley, uh, village back in the uh, provinces. So, uh, Sounds a bit like Spaniard, and now we've got the Celt. The Celt, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, as you might assume from the title, and the trailer, and what we've already said, there is the Mount Vesuvius that erupts, uh, much like Callum, if he ever had to review Transcendence again. Uh, sorry, Callum, <laughs> I had to do that. I always put that in there. But yeah, um, <laughs> so yeah, the Celt, Jon Snow, uh, Kit Harrison, he ends up in Pompeii uh, in the year 79 AD, to be precise. Um, so yeah, once he's there, he meets the well-to-do Emily Browning, um, of Sucker Punch and Lemony Snicket's series of, of unfortunate events of fame, um, who he uh, falls in love with, but she's forced into an engagement with the very same Roman git who murdered Kit's family, uh, played by the film Saviour in many respects, a very British, over-the-top, moustache-twizzling, cape-swishing, eyebrow-raising Kiefer Sutherland. Um so, yeah, it's directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, who um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's probably most well-known for the Resident Evil films. 
um, for which he has usually been given a bit of stick for. And I include myself in that because I didn't really enjoy Resident Evil films. I do like um, lots of zombie films, as has been discussed plenty of times before. But Resident Evil films just don't really do anything for me. Uh, but to be fair to him, I don't think he makes films badly. I just think he makes bad films. Um, so sometimes, you know, he makes enjoyably bad films, such as the Jason Statham vehicle. Uh, pun intended, by the way. The Jason Statham vehicle, Death Race. Um, or the first Alien vs. Predator film. And I'd even go so far as to include the live-action Mortal Kombat movie. And that, that is so bad, it's good, I think. Um, but Event Horizon is his best movie in every respect. Um, not just because it's basically Hellraiser in space, which is one of my favourite horrors. He's the world champion at making films that are so bad that they're good. I would, yeah, AVP, I would agree. Mortal Kombat and Resident Evil. I mean, if you don't find it just a, a smidgen of enjoyment out of them, even though they are shit, then there's something wrong with you, I think. Yeah. The first and Resident Evil was quite well. good. I quite enjoyed yeah. the first one, it's alright. Well, I wasn't that key. But the, yeah, the bit with the grid is, is brilliant, the laser grid. Oh, God, it's been so long since I've seen it. I just remember thinking it was terrible. <laughs> and I was just really unimpressed with it. But, um, it's just a massive disappointment because it was it's so far removed from the video game. Really. Oh, there you go. That's I've never right, played yeah. it. Never played it? Okay, we're going to go off on a tangent if we carry yeah, on. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, where does Pompeii fit in amongst those films then? I guess is the question. Um, well, it is another bad film that he has somehow made surprisingly decent. Um, he's competently made something with as tacky a script as Pompeii, with its you know cheesy throwaway lines and its scornful head-turning glances and its manly men who bond over the arguing over who's going to kill each other first, you know, it, it's made it into something better than just not particularly boring, which admittedly doesn't seem like much of a compliment um, or like it's enough really to convince anyone to go and spend fifteen quid on it to see it in three D. But you know what? I thought it. I thought it would be as crap as The Day After Tomorrow or 2012, um, but, you know, set in Pompeii uh, with a group of boring dolts running away from a CGI volcano. And, you know, the bizarre thing is, it actually is almost exactly that. The first half is Gladiator, the second half is, like, 2012. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't anywhere near the standard uh, of the other more recent CGI disaster movies. Uh, honestly, it was just it just wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. I, I was fully expecting to come on this podcast and rant about how utterly terrible it is and how I've wasted my time watching yet another shit film in the cinema because Cineworld don't show any decent films. But, um, you know, I guess it, it was as bad as I suspected it might be, but it was more enjoyable than I was expecting it to be. Uh, it's kind of the film you could, could watch on a Sunday evening on, like, film four be mildly entertained by for a couple of hours, and then by the end of the week, you've forgotten about it completely. Um, so, you know, I'm not really selling it very well, <laughs> I guess. And, but that's pretty much all I've really got to say about it. It's, it's a bad film, but a well-made bad film. But, you know, the predictable, cliched script is the worst thing about it, which isn't at all surprising given it's written by the same person who did Batman Forever. Um, but yeah, it's okay, really. My, my question is, from my knowledge of history, no one escaped the, that eruption. So, if that's the case, what's the point of the film? Because everyone must die at the end. You haven't seen Doctor Who, have you? Well, I have seen. <laughs> I have seen that. I have seen that one. I'm assuming we're working in different in different canons. 
he, gonna... he had to survive because he's the next doctor. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna gonna assume this isn't a biography, so um, it it's not really based on fact apart from there's a volcano. But so you know, if everyone died in real life, then everyone's gonna die in a. Anyway, this this whole plot holes, Hollywood annoy me with them. So, yeah, <laughs> it's not found footage film, Steve. There's no one there to just put this. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite I'm yeah. quite aware it's not found footage. <laughs> so there's no there's no like <laughs> error in how did they find out about this? There was a volcano and it was recorded by people. Cause, I don't cause, think that's because the Romans like to keep records, and if someone got out, they would have written about it. I'm pretty sure that in the Cambridge Latin course, someone got out. I, I'm not saying it's like based on on factual knowledge, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Was there someone called Caecilius in it? Because if it is, his son Quintus gets out. I'm Boy. I'm pretty sure of it. Knowledge bombs. Boom. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, this is too intellectual for this. I'm reviewing Pompeii, Carol. Keep your <laughs> Latin courses to yourself. Pompeii. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> is it just me, though? Or has the, the fact that it's Paul W. S. Anderson, has that been kept epically quiet? Because I, I that's the first I've actually known about it. Yeah. There was no there was no trailer saying from the director of AVP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's actually the first I've heard because it's it's this week's uh, like bus film. Uh, in that the mm. first I've known about it is when it's on buses everywhere, yeah. and uh, and and nowhere at all has it been mentioned that it's by Paul W S Anderson, which is probably you know it's probably why because they're probably trying to give it a, a helping hand. <laughs> I see. I saw the trailer. Million times in the cinema. It, it seems like every time I've been to the cinema since about January, I've seen a Pompeii oh, okay. trailer, okay. and it's Paul W S Anderson's name has been, uh, oh, not plastered all over it, but it's been obvious. Oh, there you go. What what I lack in trailer knowledge, I make up for in Latin. So and buff knowledge. Question, Owen. One quick question: yeah. Is it better than Dante's Peak? Because this is all we need to know before we go and see it. Oh, no, because hang on, if you're throwing volcano films into it, then there's volcano as well. I haven't seen either of them. This is the first major volcano disaster movie I've seen. Matt Matt and Carol, have you seen both Dante's Peak and the Volcano? And if so, which is your favourite? I've I've seen seen Dante's Peak, and I've seen Joe vs. the Volcano. No, I'm talking about about Volcano with, with Tommy Lee Jones, where... Is that a euphemism for Pamela Anderson? Hang on. Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> uh, I've seen Dante's Peak. I remember it that, with Pierce Brosnan, right? Yes, that one yeah, with Pierce yeah. Brosnan. And Linda Hamilton. Yeah, I remember it being quite good. I can't remember a lot yeah, more about it. The other one's called Volcano, and it's about a volcano that just pops up in the middle of LA. Because didn't they both come out pretty much at the same yeah, time? Yeah, it, like it was like a deep impact Armageddon type deal, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I saw Dante's Peak. It was okay. Was it better than Dante? So we don't know whether it's better than Dante's Peak. I've no idea. I'm going to assume perhaps not. I'm not <laughs> just because of what Pompeii is like. But um, yeah, if you like Jon Snow, go and see Pomp Two. If you prefer James Bond, go and see Dante's Peak. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. If you have any kind of um, feelings towards Kit Harrison and you want to see him with his top off a lot, then. Pompeii is the film for you, really. There you go. There you go. Pomp Pomp 2 reviewed. Uh, Now, then, on to the second new release review, which is Bad Neighbours. Here's a clip. I'm Teddy. Who's this little lady? 
Stella. Stella, That's yeah. That's so Best cute. name ever. Are you Aww, kidding? She's, she's a little flirt. Oh, uh, like her mom, I bet. Mm. Cool. Anyway, if you could maybe just uh, sometimes... Keep it down. All right. Well, and man, if you guys ever need anything or we get too noisy, just talk to me or talk to Pete. We'll take care of it. Same with us. I mean, we get pretty loud over there. Yeah, yeah. We're Game busy, of Thrones, so. we get loud. When Khaleesi comes on, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> All righty. Well. Dope. So that was in the clip of Bad Neighbors, new film starring Seth Rogen and Zac Efron. A uh, couple of bits of trivia now. Uh I didn't know this until today, but apparently this in America is being released as Neighbours and internationally as Bad Neighbours. And I can only assume that's because in the UK and Australia, if you released a film called Neighbours, they think it'd be about Mad and Harold Bishop. <laughs> I definitely want to see Harold Bishop's escapades on the big screen. I'd be really upset if I turned up and imagine, it wasn't him. Imagine if it wasn't was... he in the newspaper this week? With a, it was a caption, it was all about Louis van Gogh. And Man United, and they had a picture of what's his name from Neighbours in it. Harold Bishop. Harold Carpenter. Just said his name. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. I'm sure I saw it this week. Steve should know. He's the football guru. Yeah, but I've not seen a picture of Harold Bishop in a paper of, with a sports <laughs> section. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Imagine if, Twitter. Oh, so imagine if you replaced Seth Rogen and his wife in this film with Madge and Harold Bishop. There you go. Harold Bishop could play Glazer. <laughs> anyway, uh, trivia two, me and Zac Efron share a birthday, and that is just the start of the similarities between us. <laughs> the start and literally the end of the similarities between you and Zac Efron. Well, there was that time Steve did a whole dance musical number in his school. <laughs> yeah, I got, I oh, got, yeah, I've seen that video. Yeah, it, was only la- it was only last year. I got surprised I got kicked out. <laughs> Anyway, yes, on to a proper review of the film then. Um, seen by mo- both myself and Carol. I thought, very good comedy. Cinema was full where I was, or near enough full, and it was getting good laughs throughout. Um, good performances from the central characters and um, good mix of kind of jokes and physical comedy. Yeah, I think that's pretty much right, really. Um, the cinema where I went to see it, I actually only went to see it today, uh, probably had about a dozen people in it at most, and my biggest entertainment, as ever, were the two 60-year-old women sitting in front of me. Um, it, it, always hilarious. I remember seeing Borat in a very similar situation, and their reactions were probably the funniest bit about the whole film. It is, it um, is I, I was in a, a cinema where I reckon they were for um, Wolf of Wall Street, and I reckon they were probably 10 years older than 60. <laughs> and I and they they were not happy about the film, and I don't know what they were doing in there. <laughs> <laughs> Just their reactions probably more entertaining than the actual film itself. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it's 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 funny. It, it was really funny. It made me laugh. It made the the twelve other people in the cinema laugh probably at least a dozen times, which is you know pretty much what what you'd be expecting from a from a big comedy that's been marketed as such. I'm not going to remember any of it next week. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, the one thing I was a bit confused about, though, Stephen, I don't know whether you picked on, up on this, who is actually being marketed at? Um, because you kind of get the impression it's being marketed at, at kind of the kids, you know, like the, it, obviously it's a generational thing and there's a 
fraternity and they're all like, I don't know, 18, 21. And then there's people who are, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but my age. And, um, you know, you, you kind of think, well, I'm not sure. I think it's being marketed towards the, the 18 to 21 year olds. I've, but the message coming out of it is for us. <laughs> I, I think it's generally going for quite a wide audience because you've got, there's, there is a kind of message in it for the um, for the kind of younger people, the same age as the frat house. Probably more of a message if you're American. There is a bit of a yeah. message coming out of it for them, but there is also the message coming out of it for the people the, the similar age or in a similar situation, just starting a young family like Seth Rogen and his wife's character are in the film. So, right, so I think it's just being marketed at kind of a general audience. Um, who, But you, you've definitely got to like that kind of humour. So if you didn't like This Is The End and if you didn't like Superbad and you don't, or 21 Jump Street, and you don't find films like that funny, you're not going to like this. But if you like those kind of films and you find those films funny, you will really like this. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's quite kind of, um, I don't know whether Judd Apatow was involved, but it did kind of feel like his hand was in it a little bit as well. Was it not Evan? Not with the length at all, it was only about 100 minutes. Was it not Evan, usually does quite a lot of these films with Seth Rogen. Uh, I can't remember his surname. Evan Goldberg. I don't know. He was he was involved in this one, so it was. Um... To yeah, be fair, he... though, in these sort of comedies, aren't they just pretty much pointing the camera at these people who people throw their money at to go and see, and just letting them do whatever they want? So yeah, the thing I I really like Seth Rogen. I I really like probably most things that I've seen him in. I find him quite a quite a, a good screen presence i find him quite easy going and you know i'm happy to spend a couple of hours in his company um so pretty much you know anything with him and i'm gonna like like with the exception of green hornet obviously because that's awful um but like uh yeah yeah it, it's funny enough I'm, I'm not gonna remember a lot of it in a week's time I've, but it did the job i thought zach efron was pretty good in this in, in yes. kind of fun because i've i've not seen him in Anything, I don't think. Obviously, I know of him from High School Musical, where he came. That that was what shot him to stardom. And I don't really know of him. I don't think I've seen him in anything else. So I don't know. He was in that that film last year, wasn't he, with uh, about the Kennedy assassination? He was in Parkland. Yeah, yeah he was Parkland, one of the doctors, yeah. and he was really he was. good in that. I, I remember mm. singling him out. I was mm. really impressed with him there. I remember him being. I've, I've sat through High School Musical far too many times due to having a much younger brother. Um, so kind of my my take on him was a bit kind of coloured from that. But I remember seeing him in the um, remake of Hairspray and he was really good in that as well, although it was kind of a similar a similar role. But it did have a, a bit of extra, it did have some sort of attempt at drama at it. Um, but yeah, I, I've been really impressed with everything that I've seen him in. Um, I think he has to be a bit, I think he's trying not to get pigeonholed, really, and I think that's probably a good idea. Yeah, I think there's definitely a chance that after doing High School Musical and Hairspray, there was a chance he could get pigeonholed as kind of a, a, a kind of teen-friendly musical Disney film cat, actor. So he's definitely, you know, with doing something like this and Parkland, he's definitely challenging himself. Yeah, Which I think he's the right got a lot, lot more potential. Mm. He was actually in my neck of the woods uh, a few years ago. He did a film over here in the Isle of Man called Me and Awesome Wells. I don't know if anyone actually oh, saw yeah. that one. They're supposed to be pretty good, and that would be a more serious role than the sort of high school preppy stuff that he's really uh, built his career on so far. So he's obviously got a little bit of versatility to him. Um, he's obviously just been used by 
people who, who have picked him up in certain films in a certain way, but um, probably like, um, what's the guy out of 21 Jump Street called? Who... Channing Tatum. Exactly, that yeah. guy. He, he was portrayed in a certain way for a lot of the films and he's starting to slowly expand his repertoire and is impressing along the way. So I was so impressed with him in 21 Jump Street. I thought he was hilarious. I really wasn't expecting him to be that funny. Yeah, he was very good. There were a lot of actors at the minute who were kind of on a transitional stage, or perhaps even past it, I guess. I was thinking of um, Matthew McConaughey, who was known for those shitty rom-coms. And they suddenly, you know, he's making things like True Detective, and he's picking up... Uh, did he get the Oscar, or did he yeah, get he did. the... Yeah, he did get the Oscar, didn't he, for... Um, oh, for fuck's sake, what's wrong with my brain? Dallas Buyers Club. Dallas Buyers Club. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, so... Yeah, I think there's a few, there's a few other actors like that, but the com- with regards to the, like the comedy stuff, um, Channing Tatum he, he has impressed me a bit. I wasn't expecting to like Twenty One Jump Street, and I, I kind of did. I thought he was really good in it. Yeah, I oh. really I really liked it. Um, I was shown it by we had a um, guest over at ours, and he's about like eighteen, so I think that's probably who it's more aimed mm. at really. And he said, "Oh, you have to watch this; it's fantastic." I was like, "Okay," but I was really really surprised. Uh, yeah. It was really, really funny. Okay, so but, um, this is the end was good as well, though. Yeah. I think that was the, you've mentioned that already, Steve. I think yeah. as the you know the one that's kind of getting compared to a lot because it was quite successful and actually wasn't just aimed at a particular audience. It, it had a bit of um, you know depth to some of the humour. I think. Oh, there was one other thing actually I wanted to mention about bad names. One thing it did actually that I did like quite a lot was the fact that um, the wife, whose name I completely forgotten, <laughs> which is that's pretty awful. It's kind of like going against everything I'm about to say. Um, Rose Byrne, yes, thank you. Um, she wasn't kind of just kind of relegated to the screeching Harridan at the back, which I've noticed has happened in a couple of Judd Apatow films. As I said, I, I know he's not involved in this, but I kind of associate Seth Rogen with him anyway. Um, so she, she does have like a, a big part to play. She's not just kind of screeching from the sidelines as I was kind of expecting her to do, which was quite a nice surprise. Uh, quite a nice surprise. Yeah, I mean, yeah, female characters in these kind of films can get relegated to kind of background characters, which she wasn't. She was very much a main part. Well, the Anchorman too didn't really um, didn't really deal with female characters very well, did it? It's a surprise because the first one it tried to make uh, you know the, the female opposite to Ron Burgundy. Actually, she wasn't the central character, but she had a lot of involvement with it, and she was she was built up a little bit. But you're right in these sort of comedy. It's one of the things I don't really like about them. They're just so uh, misogynistic, I guess. By their very nature, you know, it's yeah. romance humour, isn't it, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's all for um, the new releases. So just and nearly all for the podcast. So now all we've got to do is give you some recommendations for the week ahead. Uh, I'm going to go with Sunday, and I'm going to go with quite late on on Sunday on Film 4, uh, at 25 past 11 is Mona Lisa starring Bob Hoskins in one of his more um, kind of revered roles. Uh, Owen, what are you telling people to watch? Um, there's not a lot on this week, in all fairness. I had to look through every channel that's on my favourites list on my Sky Planner for the whole week, and there's virtually nothing really worth worth picking. But I've gone for GoldenEye, the Bond film. 
yes. uh, which is on ITV on Friday at 10.35pm. Because I watched it this week for the first time since it was probably released and I was a wee, a wee nipper. Um, I watched it, I bought it on DVD for fuck's sake. I bought it on DVD and suddenly ITV have decided to show it. Have they so, got the rights back now? Because Sky had them all, and I've noticed like every bank holiday I've turned on since then, ITV have had one on. No, I can't believe it. But anyway, yeah, it was actually quite decent. It, was, it wasn't as good as I remembered it. But uh, yeah, it's on ITV Friday, 10.35. Okay, uh, Carol? Uh, I've gone for a, a double header because some people are never, ever, ever going to forgive me for the first one I'm going to recommend. Um, on Monday, <laughs> on Monday uh, night, nine o'clock on film four, is this film called Skyline. I am a big fan of bad films, and this is a bad, bad film. It is, it is truly awful. Watch it, watch it drunk. That's that's probably the only recommendation I can make. Really, watch it drunk. Uh, it's basically an alien invasion. Uh, Hits. I think it's. I think it's New York. I might be wrong. Oh no, sorry, it's Los Angeles. Sorry, uh, and it's got um, Turk out scrubs in it, and it's just. It's spectacularly. It's so bad. It's hilarious. Um, but after that, though, is The Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, where obviously people track him down in the streets of Los Angeles again, uh, where they where he's been uh, in TV game show, and uh, yeah, great film. So yeah, sorry about the first one, but uh, <laughs> I've made up for it with the, with the second one. You definitely redeemed yourself there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, finally, Matt. Yeah, I've got a, a, another quick double header as well, if you don't mind. Uh, in tribute to Bob Hoskins, uh, you can catch Hook, uh, which is my favourite of his more child-orientated movies or family-orientated movies, I should say. Uh, that's on uh, 9:20 in the morning on Sunday the 11th, and. Uh, getting a little bit more uh, adult friendly is Kindergarten Cop on uh, Saturday the tenth at four fifteen on Sky Movies Comedy. Okay. Is that more adult friendly? It's fifteen rated. I love Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> Excellent. I'm Wait. the body pooper. Who's your daddy? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and obviously. Uh, Next Goal Wins is now out in selected Odeon cinemas. You can find my reviews and interview with director Steve Jameson on the website www.failedcritic.com. Um, we'll be back around the same time next week. So thanks for listening and thanks to everyone who's contributed. Don't have nightmares. <laughs> the Failed Critics are James Diamond, Steve Norman, and Owen Hughes, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com, at Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritics, and on Twitter at at failedcritics. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.